getting to end of semester. That's always a giddy time. I'll try to I'll try to suppress my giddiness during the podcast. But yes, I'm good. Do you have any excitement uh, planned for the end of the semester? Sitting in your home quietly is that what uh, is that what your plan is for the summer? I'm fully vaccinated. Yeah. I'm I'm we 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 have bought plane tickets to go back east, see my family, nice. visit my my wife's extended family in Maine. Uh, we are we in fact we are probably tomorrow going out to dinner for the first time in well over twelve months, and we are we are very much looking forward to that. What's the uh, what's the winner? Who's your so, pick? Place? So we we like this little wine bar and kind of meze place called Primrose Path, that's connected to the big steakhouse, the Republic Steakhouse. Which is a very nice restaurant, but we like the the wine bar and the and the small plates, and so we will go to Primrose Path for our first outing of the right. literally our first social outing to a public place since COVID. Yeah, well, uh, good for you. I've gone now a couple of times into some restaurants, um, and it is. I think I maybe even said it here. I I cried the first time. First time we were in a restaurant. <laughs> And I could have like a nice meal with my wife and uh, an adult beverage. I just like I just cried. I was so happy to be around other people and eating. Uh, it was it was wonderful. Um, you should you should introduce our guest, and we can ask Christy what she's going to do when she's ah yeah. So we do have uh, Christine, Dr. Christine Blackburn, back with us. Christy, thanks for joining us again this evening. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Excited to be here. Are you also all vaccinated? I am also all vaccinated. I got my second shot about three weeks ago, so it's pretty exciting. Yeah, and have you been into a restaurant yet? Uh, no, so I've eaten outdoors at a restaurant a handful of times, like sat outside, had the food out there, but I, I haven't eaten indoors. Well, I guess that makes me the, the guilty party of the team, and I'm not fully vaccinated yet, but I did get my first one this past Saturday. Um, so I'm just a couple weeks away and, uh, don't, uh, don't be like the 9% that get their first shot and don't go back for their second shot. Yeah. I, yeah. They made it really easy. I went to, um, I went to a Kaiser Permanente site and when they, when it opened 16 and up, uh, here, there was just a, a ton of appointments. It's like the three days later. And then when you go in, they're just like, okay, come back in three weeks at this exact same time. And I was like, yes, yes, I, I will be there. 9% um, actually is maybe a smaller number than would have been my hunch of the number of people who would fail to follow up on a second time. People are, are not so reliable following up uh, three weeks later on something. Christy, what do you think? 9%, I think it's a little bit higher than that, if, but mm. it probably varies probably varies by state. And I, read that, I, read, I read that 9%, I think in the New York Times, but you know. Yeah, I think it's much higher here in Texas, but I don't know, yeah. maybe that's the number that I'm I'm thinking of, but it, does, it probably does depend on like where you go because I got mine in Harris County and it was at uh, NRG Stadium and they didn't give me any information. They just sent me a text the day before I was supposed to be there for my second shot. Like <laughs> you need to sign up for your second shot. You have tomorrow to do it. So <laughs> I feel like that can make it a little bit hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. 
Really Why did you go down to Harris County? Did you, you weren't, you didn't like the way things were going in Brazos County? Or what, <laughs> no, that? it wasn't open up here yet. Like I had put myself on all of the wait lists and then Harris County was the first one to offer me a spot. Okay. I, yeah. I mean, I waited in Brazos for Brazos and I went to the, to the vaccine hub uh, in the county and, and both of my shots were, you know, very well managed. The crowd was, you know, it was, Aggie engineers running the whole thing. It was very well organized. People putting you through the parking lot, you know, this stop for this thing, this stop for your documents and all. And, and you, it was, it was a, a model of efficiency. I was in and out in less than an hour. Uh, it was even with the wait time and the, the, the post, uh, the 15 minutes after. So, you know, kudos to the, to Brazos Valley for Brazos County for getting that together. But, you know, the downside is they've got all sorts of open appointments now and they're not filling it up. They're, they're, they're going to close the vaccine center early because people aren't going. You can, in fact, you don't have to make an appointment anymore. You can walk in. But last week, only 78 people did that. So the county is less than 50% uh, in terms of, of fully vaccinated. And, and I think we'll be less than 50% even when the second shots come through. So I, I'm, I'm a little worried about the fact that we're not. So, you know, I mean, the county is trying, they're, they're, they're sending the mobile vaccines out. They're doing pop-ups at, at not pop-ups, but scheduled, uh, vaccine events at, in, in, uh, in areas where folks might have had trouble going online, where folks might have had trouble getting uh, transportation, so I think I think the county is doing okay. I just worry about the uptake. Yep, I think that's going to be a problem from here on out, not just in uh, the lovely state of Texas, but in lots of places and lots of communities. Um, Christy, well, thanks for joining us again. Um, Christy, as you may all remember, is our uh, our pandemic expert that we've been leaning on heavily now since about this time last year to keep us informed and uh, help keep Greg and I grounded. One one question that I had for you, Christy, is you know we when we talked last, uh, Greg and I and and me in particular uh, were. Uh, remained frustrated with how some of the things that played out uh, from a leadership standpoint in our own in our own country uh, compared to how at least some other countries have been able to handle it. And since then, we've, we have several vaccines now. We are, we've been ramping up uh, the distribution of vaccines. Greg is highlighting a, a problem that we're running into now, which is uptake. But what's your sense of, uh, it seems to me that once we had the vaccines, we have done a reasonably good job of ramping up production, getting it out, making it available to people in the U.S. What's your sense of how how the US is doing on the on the vaccine rollout just kind of broadly. Um, broadly, I think the US has done a really good job on the vaccine rollout. I mean, considering especially how a lot of other things, you know, the initial rollout of testing kits and that sort of thing went, um, I think it's been really impressive how the US has done uh, I mean, that many, creating that many doses of vaccine and then getting that many doses out is is a really impressive so yeah, I think that's been really good. 
So one, one other um, thing that I wanted to get your take on early, and then I would be really curious what your thoughts on maybe what's not being talked about kind of in the news, given that you have a little bit more of the science background. Um, and so I'd be yeah, really- Yeah, she's got a little bit more of the science background than you and I do. Uh, yeah, with which her, is our- With her PhD. In, <laughs> what's your PhD in again, Christy? It's an interdisciplinary PhD. So it's in it's veterinary good. sciences, communication, and political science. So, so the veterinary science part, Justin, <laughs> actual is, <laughs> actual science, as opposed to say the political science part that, that we that we try to do. <laughs> so the the other thing that I hear a lot about that I imagine some of our listeners hear uh, some of as well is this. Uh, this worry that enough people aren't going to get vaccinated. And so we're not going to be able to reasonably return to a, to a sense of normal and, or that mutated versions of the virus are going to be resistant to the vaccines that are available. What's, uh, what's your general sense of, are we, you know, are we moving in a direction at a fast enough pace with the vaccine so that it will be reasonable to have things um, kind of be back, to normal in the fall or or should we really be concerned about some of these variances of the virus and uh, uh you know a concern with the uptake of the vaccine what, what's your just general thought on that um well I, I feel like you say that as a simple question but i feel like it's such a, such a complex multi-layered answer there's so. at least two or three different things at the just, very basic just, level for you. just yes or no yes yeah, or just, no. yeah well, everything's fine it's gonna be fine um no i think I mean, I think there's so many different layers of problems there. It's like, it's really exciting for those of us who are vaccinated. I think right now, like having some semblance of normalcy, I'm, I'm planning to, to like squeeze in a year of field work in the next two months, right? So like getting back out there and like doing all the stuff that we weren't able to do, I, I think that's safe. But then at the same time, you know, if, if we don't reach herd immunity, then people who aren't vaccinated don't have don't have that protection from the high level vaccinated people and then we also can't vaccinate kids so for families if you want to do stuff you, you know you want to go eat at a restaurant like you can but you're also putting your kid at risk or if you want to travel then we still have that complication and people under eight, 16 or 18 are, are like 21 percent of the population so it's not a small amount um, and then on top of that, it's like, we might all feel like our lives are kind of going back to normal, but if a lot of people are still ending up in hospitals because we didn't reach that herd immunity, then what does that do to our healthcare workers who have kind of, who are burnt out already? Um, so yeah. And, and again, uh, the variants, like what's going to happen with the variants. Yeah. And if we have a substantial number of people who are not vaccinated, that's going to put selective pressure on those on the virus to get around our vaccine immunity. So right now, from, you know, what I read in the newspapers, the vaccines seem to be pretty good against the variants. Is that your sense? They are. Yeah. All, all especially like the UK variant, it's very effective. South African variant, much less effective, but still, you know, 54% or so, which is a good, is really actually good in terms of, of vaccine effectiveness. Um, I think the ones that like are the biggest concern are the one in Brazil, um, one of the variants in India, just because 
they have components of them that seem to potentially be able to evade immunity. And there's a lot of weird stuff going on in those particular outbreaks um, that I don't think we really completely understand yet. So as of right now, it's good, but but there are a couple of concerning variants and I don't know what that's gonna turn into in the future. So obviously you wouldn't recommend anybody to travel to these places, but do you think it would be important for the US not to allow people from those places to travel here? I don't know. I think, I mean, I think travel bans have a, a limited effectiveness. You know, a lot of the research on them shows that they're usually not that effective in keeping, you know, keeping disease out. So I, I don't necessarily know about that as opposed to the things that they're doing now where you have mandatory quarantine when you get here, mandatory testing before you leave, those sorts of things. Um, I, I think it's going to be really important. The U.S. is sending a contingent down to Brazil to figure out, you know, what's going on, I think is is kind of what they're looking at next. I think that's going to be more important than anything else is figuring out, like, why did we assume that, you know, 90 percent of the city had immunity and then all of a sudden they were all sick and dying again? And the same sort of thing is happening in India. So I think figuring out why that, that's happening is going to be more important because that's going to prevent it from happening here or other places too. So it's kind of happening here in a, in a less dramatic way in certain parts of the country, right? Michigan is the one we read about in the newspapers where, you know, I, I, I don't think the healthcare system is as overloaded as it was perhaps during the, the really bad spikes earlier uh, in, in 2020, but, but they're clearly having some kind of spike there, right? Mm -hmm. And I just have to assume it's because there's a variant that is more contagious, like this British variant. Is that your sense? Yeah, I think it could. I think, I think it might be a combination of factors. I'm not going to say this definitively, like this is the answer, but I think it might be, you know, the variant arrived at a time when vaccines weren't, you know, as high as they are now, and or weren't increasing, you know, they had just started and things were opening up. And so you kind of just had this, potentially had this perfect storm where you have a more contagious variant and a susceptible population that's moving around. But I don't know that it, that's it for sure. Yeah, because it seems weird because Michigan, which of course, you know, took this very seriously from the get-go and the governor had quite a bit of, of grief because of it. You know, you would have assumed that there wasn't anything unusual about Michigan that it it should be a place with a for a hot spot, and I just I worry that it's a harbinger of what we're going to see, you know, coming down the road if we can't get enough jabs in people. Yeah, it definitely could. I mean, definitely could be the UK variant is the the top one spreading in the U.S. So if it gets into places where you don't have a lot of vaccine immunity or immunity from the virus itself, then it could, the same thing could happen for sure. Hmm. So I was, I'm wondering more sort of broadly as someone who was, you know, one of the only people I knew personally that was studying pandemics before, before we were living in one, um, what, how does this fit with the textbook cases that we should have been prepared for for pandemics? I and mean, what have we been learning about being prepared for pandemics compared to, I mean, it's been a long, 
well, as we've talked about, it hasn't been a, hasn't been that long since we've had pandemics, but it's been a long one, long time since one has been this bad and in the U.S. And so, what what types of things from the pandemic kind of prepared playbook um, have we been have we been learning about either how society responds or about how we need to be responding? Things that are effective, not effective. I mean, was it kind of the case that you the pandemic experts sort of <laughs> knew the playbook all along, we just didn't listen, and this is kind of where we are, or what, what kind of new things have we been learning as this is stretching out into a 14-month sort of ordeal in the U.S. now? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think there were things that maybe we knew, but we hadn't given enough attention to, so I don't want to place all the blame on, like, society didn't do a good job. I think, you know, we talked about, I remember there was a lot of conversation at the beginning that was like, oh, we never thought we would have to shut the economy down. We weren't prepared for that. But we've done that in every pandemic. Every, every pandemic, we've closed schools. Every pandemic, we've closed businesses. So I don't think it was uh, right or accurate for us to say that we didn't know that this could be an outcome. And to not be prepared for that, I think, was a failing of the preparedness community in that aspect. Um, there are probably people in the preparedness community that would disagree with me on that. But that's what I see. I mean, we were, we did that back in 1918. We did it in 2009. We did we did it all these times. So, I think we should have been better prepared for that. I do think we underestimated the 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 extent that like miscommunication, political partisanship, like all of those things have have reached. Um, because the last time the U.S. really dealt with anything that looked like a pandemic was really before like in the early days of Facebook, you know, we're talking like SARS. So I don't think that we had caught, we knew misinformation was a problem, but I don't think it, we had caught up with like how big of an impact it could have if you're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and then obviously just, just the here at least, the disconnect between the science and the community and our leadership um, at the beginning was, uh, made it much harder for us to do the things we knew that we had to be doing to stop the pandemic. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 not clear that the former president knew a whole lot about science or had any respect for the science community more generally, uh, which did well, at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, crazy. <laughs> so I but I I think that the difference between the former guy and the current guy is not their knowledge of science. I don't think the current guy has much knowledge of science either. It's it's who you listen to and and, and whose opinion you respect as you make your decisions. Yeah, I think I would put their knowledges of science uh, in comparison, and I think one would be much higher than the other, even with them being relatively low overall. You don't yeah. think so? <laughs> Let's convince. I don't know, you got, you got to remember, I grew up with Joe Biden in Delaware. That's true, that's true, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> he, he was never an A student, that's for sure. <laughs> So, Christy, what are things that are like not out that are not in the headlines because they're not as political in nature or they haven't become talking points or they're, you know, not uh, death counts or things that really grab people's attention? You know, someone that's been kind of studying these things, watching it unfold. And as you're getting you know, updated, what are we what are we missing? What have Greg and I not been thinking about and talking about as folks that aren't don't that are only looking at kind of the bigger picture political pieces what are some pieces of this that would be good to share with the audience or with us that that people wouldn't be hearing, you know, on their normal uh, news circuits? 
Yeah, so the two things I think that are most interesting to me personally, and I have seen like an article here and there loosely in like the New York Times, but it definitely isn't like front and center. And that would be um, long-term impacts of COVID infection for people who survive. And the other one would be the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. So I want to start with the long-term one um, impacts because I think this is really important. I feel like we from the very beginning kind of talked about COVID as like you get it and you die or you survive. But the reality is like people who even had mild symptoms are having these pretty severe long-term outcomes like chronic fatigue syndrome, acute kidney disease, um, like what is being termed as brain fog where people feel like have a constant feeling of like you just woke up from anesthesia or you have dementia. And these are people who had mild COVID symptoms. They weren't severe. They weren't in the hospital. They were just a little bit sick. And now they're dealing with these pretty severe, like long-term complications. There's been cases of people who had mild, this is, this is very rare, but it, there's been more than one case is people who had mild or moderate um, infection who now have psychosis that resembles schizophrenia. You know, like, so there are, there are all of these like in between impacts from people who were just a little bit sick, who now might have what is classified as an actual disability, like some people can't work anymore, um, or they might be dealing with for a very long time. And I think that's something that people need to understand, because especially young people were like, oh, if I get sick, I'll probably be fine. But if you get sick, you know, young people in particular, because it has such an impact on your heart muscle, we're seeing in football teams around the country now who, you know, went forward with playing the season. Um, there's players who can't play anymore because they got infected and they seem fine, but it weakened their heart muscle. And now it's a risk for them to play football. And so that's happening in other young people, too, is that puts such a strain on their heart. Um, and then it kind of masks that because you're strong and your body's strong enough to compensate for a while. So there's been you know, at least one case of someone in their 20s who got sick and then thought they were fine, but they didn't really feel great. And they ended up dying several months later because their heart muscle gave out and they didn't realize how serious it was until there was nothing that they could do anymore. Like, because that's when their body couldn't compensate. So I think those things are really important. And there's quite a bit of studies coming out. This is kind of like the, the new focus, I would say, of the scientific community is understanding that and what the impacts are gonna be like on the people infected, but also like broader on our health infrastructure and the economy and all of those things. Um, Chris, before, Christy, before you get into the multi-system yeah. inflammatory syndrome in kids, do we have a good sense of how many people actually got COVID? I don't think we do. I saw, um, recently I saw the, the last year's numbers on excessive deaths and they were very high. Um, yeah. and, and not all of those are going to be COVID, but right. I think it's much higher than what we think it is. Or so, that is the confirmed number we have. So what, so what are people, what, what's the confirmed number as a percentage of the total U.S. population? Is it like 12? Is it 15? Is it 20? I, I think, what's the current number? It's like 39 million, maybe? Isn't that where we're 39 at? 39 million. So that's like 12% probably, something like that. Yeah. There's like 300, because the, the census just came out and it was what, 340 or something like that? Okay. So so it's like 11 or 12%, but 
that's probably an underestimate. Yeah, I saw a study that like kind of tried to do an estimate of what they thought was the real infected number. And granted, it's kind of like this theoretical model, but um, they were estimating potentially upwards of like 22 to 25% of people have been infected. So yeah. if you, yeah, if you use that as your high end number, it's quite a bit more so, people. So do you have a sense yet of these, the long haulers? what percentage uh, are they of the percentage of people who who got it is the are, are is the long i guess we don't know obviously because you know it's still developing but does it look like the the long haul sy symptoms are are you know a quarter of the people who get it 10% half is there a sense of that um i haven't seen anything that gives me a sense of that i think you know, at the very beginning, a lot of the people who were long haulers were dismissed from like the hospitals yeah. and, and said they were fine. So I think it makes it hard to get an accurate count there. And um, two, I mean, most of the stuff I've read is studies. So they're like a thousand people were in this study. So yeah. I haven't seen anything that says how much out of the total there is. Okay. Yeah. But because it, that, I mean, that's, that has enormous consequences, as you said, for the the structure of, of our medical care system going forward. If there yeah. are distinctive diseases and, 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 you know, syndromes for people who have had this, and it turns out it was 20% of the population and 20% of the people who had it have some number of these, of these symptoms, that's, that's tens of millions of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, based on what I can see, it seems like somewhat common. So I don't think 10 or 20% would be like a outrageous number to estimate. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you wanted to talk about the multi-system inflammatory syndrome. Oh yeah. Okay. So this, well, I will preface this by saying this is still a very rare thing. So everyone, anyone watching with young children, you don't have to get too scared. But one of the things I think that's so interesting about the multi-syndrome, uh, the inflammatory syndrome is that a recent study they did found that about 75% of the kids that were hospitalized in the ICU for this were asymptomatic during infection. So now we're talking about kids who, who didn't even like, didn't feel anything when they were sick. A large, they are being hit with this inflammatory syndrome much more severely than kids that had symptoms when they were sick. And so that's kind of like a, an interesting thing to think about, I think from a scientific perspective, but I think as a parent, it's also a scary thing. Cause what if you didn't even know your kid had COVID and then all of a sudden mm. you're rushing them to the hospital. Um, so I, I think the more research they do on that, it's going to be really interesting. And I still think it, that particular finding, I mean, I'm not a vaccine scientist, so I will preface that. I don't, I don't really know, but I do, um, I do wonder as we learn more about whether vaccines actually prevent you from getting infection or not, um, or just like make you not have symptoms, which it's looking like it could prevent infection. But if you do get infected and you're asymptomatic, then does that put you at, you know, at risk of this multi- inflammatory syndrome. I don't know. I think that there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff to learn about that. Yeah. 
Well, so one that's a little bit more uh, that isn't kind of uh, hidden or that is, has been a common talking point is, uh, and it was under the previous administration um, and was not handled in a way because the man didn't handle anything quite well, um, but was this idea of where the, where the earliest cases of the virus come from and whether or not the, uh, you know, there was this kind of theory from bats, I think at some point, and then there was some kind of other animal. And then I've come across stuff that suggested that the virus uh, had characteristics that seemed like it was, it was modified in some way or not, whether or not it come directly out of a, a lab like a leak of some sort but that it had characteristics that suggested it was a modified virus i know we're getting down into some things that are probably controversial at this point but do you have any sense of what the competing evidence is at this point in time as to where all this started do we have a better picture of that now that it's been a little while um no, I would say it's still kind of in the same place. I would say the idea that it's modified in a lab is doesn't have really, I would say, any scientific support because it's pretty easy to tell when you look at a genome if there's modification done. So if there was, that would be very clear and everyone would have that data. I think like it still really is split into, into two camps. There's people who think that, you know, the work that PREDICT was doing in China, potentially this was a, a virus that they were working on in the lab and it was released from the lab, but it was a naturally occurring virus. Um, that, that does have a, a group of people who, who believe very strongly that that's the case. Um, I would say that, view has less support in the scientific community than it just occurred naturally because coronaviruses are are everywhere. So those are still the two camps that are kind of being debated, I guess. But it's also very hard to tell either way because there isn't a lot of access in China. So getting to the the core of what really happened, whether like natural um, or or lab based is going to probably be impossible. I don't know if we'll ever have that answer for sure, like 100% certain. So one of the things that we were uh, talking a little bit about before we started uh, tonight was the, the relationship that might not be clear to everyone between pandemic and uh, national security. Um, could you talk a little bit about that link since it's something that I know um, uh, is near to you and that you care about why should people see how should how could we draw the connection to people between handling pandemics well and the security of a country or security of a state? How do you how do you see that? <laughs> um, well, I hope that that has become more obvious to people. You know, like pandemics are affecting if your pharmaceuticals show up in your pharmacy, they're affecting if you have a job, if you you know get sick going to the grocery store. So there's a lot, I feel like a lot of impact on, on our national security, on our homeland security, you know, on our general well-being. Um, but I also think it like, it, it means that we need to take a step and understand like how, how we can shore up our security in between pandemic times you know we have to have the infrastructure we have to have the health access we have to have a healthy population in order to be prepared we have to have enough 
residency spots for our medical school graduates. You know, we have to have rural doctors and rural clinics. And so I think understanding that all of that is really important to our national security and our well-being is going to to lessen the impact of the next pandemic. I don't know if we can ever stop, like just stop it in its tracks, but it'll lessen the impact and maybe we won't have to go through this experience <laughs> the same way again. Yeah, we need more doctors in this country. Uh, and the market is not solving this problem, right? Uh, and, and it's, uh, this is something that the government, I think, has to step in and make medical education available without the huge debt uh, to people who would like to be doctors and who might be qualified to get into med school. Uh, because as you say, the, the I don't know if we could call it a crisis, but I think it probably is a crisis in rural health. And, uh, you know, it's, well, that's a whole other podcast. Uh, but, but it but, is a crisis so in it, primary health, which is the first place that yeah. you're going to find symptoms from a pandemic. So, yeah, it's yeah. A big deal. Uh, so this national security issue is really interesting because it seems like we, we, the United States, in our debates about this, have taken two, you know, very different tacks. Surprise, surprise. Right. <laughs> One is that that. Uh, Viruses coming from foreign countries are threats, and these countries are responsible for them, and that is a, and and we should be suspicious of them, and they are being hostile toward us. And the other is that uh, this is this pandemic has demonstrated that you know no matter how many nuclear weapons you have, no matter how big your military is, uh, it can't stop germs, and that really only international cooperation is going to be effective in dealing with future pandemics. And that means dealing with countries that maybe you have geopolitical differences with. And, you know, it, it's kind of encapsulated by the, the Trump administration withdrawal from the WHO and then the Biden administration re-entering the WHO. So we'll put you on the spot, Christy. What should we do? Where, where, which side do you come down on on that one? Uh, on whether or not we should be part of WHO? Yeah. Good question. <laughs> um, I feel very strongly that we should be part of WHO. I mean, I, I, I think people don't realize that WHO has to, you know, in a lot of those criticisms, WHO has to respect state sovereignty. They can't just invade another country, right? They have to be invited <laughs> in. So. Um, but being part of that conversation is hugely important to, <laughs> to everything in global health. And WHO does so many more things than just pandemic, you know, preparedness and response. So right. WHO is not like the United States of America. It doesn't have an <laughs> army and it can't invade places in order to investigate virus outbreaks. So are, are there serious people that argue that it's the benefits of being in the World Health Organization and cooperating internationally with an international pandemic is the wrong approach that like well, there the is previous yeah. the, the, the previous administration felt this way because they felt that China was not living up to its obligations and the WHO was not effectively pressuring China and getting the right information out of China, right? Now, 
I don't know how much of that is true from my own very superficial reading on this. I would say that the Chinese were not the most cooperative uh, uh, interlocutors with WHO, but they also weren't a complete stonewall of WHO either. This is, as Christy said, the problem of sovereignty, right? States share what they want to share and you, you have to have a, a context in which they see it is in their long-term interests to share this stuff, share information, share access. And, and I think the Chinese, you know, there were some indications that they didn't and some indications in some things that they did. So, I mean, my own personal take is you build on that, you don't, you don't declare them the enemy and you have to be able to have geopolitical differences with countries and also cooperate with them on matters of mutual interest. Yeah, well, I'm, I wanna know if serious people actually thought that we should be withdrawing from the World Health Organization, not the, the madness that was the people working in the previous administration. Christy, I know that you're close to Dr. Fauci. Could you just have Dr. Fauci join us and have him yeah. say whether yes. he thinks we should be in WHO? <laughs> I think that's Dr. Fauci says <laughs> that being part of WHO is important. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, like I think he's shaking his head. Yes, yeah. he was. He was like, yes, he's. I agree. Um, but no, Justin, to your point, I don't think there's any. I think there are serious conversations about reforms. I do think WHO needs certain reforms. But like going back to one of the big things, and that was like China doesn't pay its fair share. But that's something that we created you know, in the 80s, is we put a cap based on the GDP at that time, because we didn't want to pay more money in the future. But I mean, China's economy has grown. So really, we did that to ourselves, And they don't have any obligation to pay over what they're paying. So, um, so yes, the, the little the amount they pay might be a fair criticism, but it's not, you know, them not paying their fair share is really like a policy we created. So yeah. So, so yeah, that's just how I'm going to end. <laughs> so like Dr. Fauci says, so yeah. World Health Organization. Greg, I have one for you, which, uh, and we'll give maybe Christy a little break um, from our rapid fire questions. Um, so part of the conversation in the last week or so, I think, um, is that we have some extra vaccines, um, maybe the AstraZeneca that hasn't been approved yet. Um, and there's a, a conversation about us making them available to other countries. Um, and I wonder, so one, uh, if, oh, just on the first hand, it's a little weird to send vaccines to other countries that you're not willing to give to your own people. So that's like some kind of weird bar thing that maybe we, is a piece of this. But what do you see as kind of the, you know, if, if we are trying to be a better international actor and not... Uh, all out on our own, pew, 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 cowboy style, and we want to be a good uh, kind of player in the global world, Is could this be an effective use of kind of soft power diplomacy, helping other countries out by helping them get vaccines much sooner? Uh, what are your, how did your real politic brain and your international affairs brain see this? So first off, that cowboy thing was very lame. That was very, very weak. But, yeah, very, very weak. Uh, second, I, I just don't see the downside here. I mean, I take your point that if if 
if we have an approved AstraZeneca, why should we send it to other people? But if they've, if they're, uh, uh, you know, public health authorities have approved AstraZeneca, have all of ours. I mean, I just don't see any downside to this. I mean, the idea that we can be, we can reach herd immunity, but not have to care about everybody else reaching herd immunity seems to me to be just illogical on the face of it. There's just too much travel around the world. You, we want everybody to, to be at the highest levels of immunity they can get to. We don't need these vaccines, right? It'd be one thing if we were having long lines and we were short on supply, then I can see a national government, our government saying, we got to take care of our people first. But our problem as, as uh, Justin, you said, is we're just the opposite. We've got more vaccines and we've got arms to stick them in because we've got too much vaccine hesitancy. Send them all abroad, send them all to India, help these people out in the long term, even not even in the long term, in the short term, it helps us. It's, it's, it's self-interest. And then if there's, if there's some soft power, you know, uh, a long-term benefit from it, all good. But to me, uh, you know, a good real us, this is in our self-interest. Do it. Yeah. Christy, do you have any sense on either the ethics or the demand here, ways that, uh, how, how to think through the fact that we have more uh, vaccines than we need and how we could distribute those or give those to places that uh, don't have them? Does there, what's the, do you have any sense of what the conversation around that is like? Um, loosely, uh, obviously not, I'm not like super um, focused on what's going on there, but I know the idea of like vaccine diplomacy, which you guys are talking about is, is becoming really big. I think there's like almost two conversations though. There's like the science conversation that's like, we need to vaccinate everybody so that we don't get variants. And then there's the political conversation, which is like China and Russia are winning vaccine diplomacy. We need to start giving away vaccines. Those are kind of the two like extremes that I've seen. Um, and I mean, I, I think as long as they accomplish more vaccines for everyone globally, um, that's the goal, right? <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say to people, you have to use ours, don't use the Russians. You know, the Russians, at least from my superficial reading, seems to be relatively effective vaccine, the, does, the Sputnik yeah. 5. So <laughs> fine, use the Sputnik and thank Mr. Putin. All, all good. The Chinese one seems to be less effective, right? It's, it's, it's around the 50% level, I think. Yeah, I think the data is harder to get around the Chinese vaccine. Chinese are not very transparent in general, so it's kind of hard to know for sure. Right. But we but we we know that it's being used in other places. I mean, I know in the Middle East it's being used in the United Arab Emirates. So we should be able to get some data from those places. But yeah, in, in any event, I, I don't, I don't, you know, take, take the Russians, take the Chinese and here, have some of ours. Get, get the world, get the world vaccinated. Yeah. So Christy, I have one, one maybe final question for you um, and then give you an opportunity to uh, add anything that from your expertise um, that you think we've missed. But as we've been uh, saying, this vaccine hesitancy, as Greg put it, uh, and, and maybe you put it as well is becoming a real challenge uh, in the US. 
Is there any good literature that you've come across um, that gives us a sense of how to combat that? I mean, given our uh, the political information war that we're in, um, are there good practices, things that we can be doing and saying to people, things we can encourage other people to do that are that are better? You know, for example, shaming is not usually the most effective tactic, uh, although it gets used a lot on social media. You know, there's been other things on social media that I think uh, seem like they could be positive. People sharing when they get the vaccine, sharing that they're doing well, those kind of things. Is, have you seen anything in the public health literature or elsewhere that uh, gives us some some guardrails or some advice for how to win people over so that we can reach herd immunity? See, Christy, this is the problem of having an interdisciplinary. <laughs> yeah. Because you have to answer the science questions and now you have to answer the communication questions. Right. It keeps me on my toes. <laughs> It's exciting, you know, never know what's coming. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when I was in grad school, I remember a study on vaccine hesitancy that I read that talked about like giving people facts actually makes it worse. So if you have people on the fence, if you give them facts about a vaccine, they're less likely to get vaccinated. So I haven't read a lot of research like in that realm, but I think that holds pretty true. If you're like, don't worry, it's only one in two million people that, you know, have this severe outcome. People yeah. view that as like a very severe threat. So um, what I've seen is like campaigns like um, the, the like quit smoking campaign. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. the, the very kind of like emotional like graphic campaign. Some people have argued that that can be really effective if you talk about what happens if you don't um, vaccinate or vaccinate your kids. Some people argue that that's a little too extreme, but really you're aiming for that, those people in the middle because the, the really hesitant people, they're never gonna get vaccinated. And then you have people who will for sure get vaccinated. So you're really aiming for the people that just might have some reservations and make it more compelling than the risk for them. And usually that's done on like an emotional level and saying like, I understand why you're concerned, but let's talk about, you know, cost benefit analysis here kind of thing. So so how about two other things? One on costs and one on benefits. We'll start with benefits. Pay people to get vaccinated. Here's a hundred bucks. You get vaccinated, here's a hundred bucks. 50 bucks for your first shot and 50 bucks for your second. What's wrong with that? Um, I think, aren't there companies that are doing that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There are companies that are incenting their, their employees to get vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, from my personal perspective, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with incentivizing people to get vaccinated. I mean, we incentivize people to participate in things all the time. Um, and this is something that's for the greater public good. So I don't see that. Yeah. I, I've seen the other side where people are saying like, you get a free gym membership if you don't get vaccinated. I think that that has ethical problems, right? Cause you could potentially cause massive harm to that person. So yeah, uh, it's yeah. Not in come, that sense. don't don't get vaccinated and come to the gym. Yeah, yeah. That's what we need. yeah exactly. Um, you can get COVID and MRSA at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So I I mean we have a 1.9 trillion dollar COVID bill. Let's spend some of that money on just putting you know you get vaccinated. Here's a hundred bucks. I mean I I I don't have any problem with that. So that's the asset. That's the the carrot side. The stick side is vaccine passports, right? It's, it's 
Now, I don't know if the government can pull this off, but I don't see any problem with a private business saying, you've got to demonstrate that you are vaccinated before you can come into our bar. You have to demonstrate that you are vaccinated before you can come into our concert venue. I, I, I mean, I have no problem with that at all. Yeah, vaccine, the, actually the, um, I guess, controversy around vaccine passports caught me off guard at first because this we do this all the time, right? You, could, you used to not be able to travel without proof of smallpox vaccine. You can't travel to certain countries without proof of yellow fever. So it's not an unprecedented idea. We, we do it with other diseases. Mm -hmm. So I was really surprised that people were so upset. I think the only challenge there, like I guess on an ethical level is at the time they originally recommended, there wasn't equal access to the vaccine. And so then you you have that problem. But I think as long as everything is is like accessible to everybody, then I don't see the problem with COVID passports or vaccine passports. I, I'm not sure that a, the government can pull it off. I think it would be too controversial. But I think private actors can can do I see absolutely no problem with private actors. I mean, then you get the in-betweens, right? So should Texas A&M require students to have, be vaccinated to re-enter a school in the fall? Uh, we've been told, you know, at, at, at the school leadership level that the university and the system say, no, that we can't do that because these vaccines are not, they're still in emergency. Uh, approval, they're not in normal regular approval. So we can't require students to be vaccinated. But we see a number of other state university systems, Rutgers, Cal State, are, are now require, or at least have announced that they're going to require students in the fall to be vaccinated before they can come back to campus. So we're both requiring students to come back to campus in the fall, requiring classes to be back in person in the fall, and not requiring students to get vaccinated because that's the part that would be too controversial. Yep. Brilliant. What's your thoughts, Christy? I was just getting making sure I was following the logic. <laughs> I mean, I would say I don't think I mean, I guess I don't know the I don't know the legal stuff around emergency use and and mandatory vaccination but if if and i would assume very, it will eventually become you know out of emergency use that's isn't that like every other vaccine we require students to have before they come like meningitis and all of those other things i'm sure there would be some mechanism for exemptions like there is for all other vaccines but um i don't i don't see why i guess i don't see why covid the covid vaccine would be any different than any other vaccines that were require before students come to school, other than if there are legal elements that I don't know about for emergency use authorization. But they're not, I mean, they're giving it to millions of people. So it's right. not really a safety, you know, issue. Right. We're, we're, we're getting a pretty good massive test of their yeah. safety. Yeah. yeah. In real time. In real time. Uh, although there is the other element, of course, which is our freedom. Freedom. Which technically, Personally, in vaccines, you don't have. You don't have the freedom to make other people sick. Yeah, pers personally, I feel a lot more free having been vaccinated. I'm going to go out to a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> Christy, is there anything um, 
that you would like to leave the audience with that uh, that we haven't gotten into any 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 uh, end of season commentary before we turn to Greg and I uh, as this is our last episode of the season uh, that you would uh, not to put you on the spot of course but anything you'd like to add. Oh gosh. Can you do it in Fauci no, voice? Can you do it with I, I can't do a Fauci voice. I'm not very good at like the any of the North. I'm not good at accents at all, but especially those. But oh, I do have a, a coronavirus too. Oh, you oh. Yeah. Yeah. I have all sorts of decorations. Away from Dr. Fauci. Yeah. 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 He's, he's working on the coronavirus. Um, no, yeah. I think I mean my my biggest thing. Is just that I, I have, I'm always, I'm risk averse as a person. So I, I tend to bring that into my pandemic preparedness and response thinking. So like, I don't, we need to be careful because we are probably not going to reach herd immunity anytime soon, which just means that the virus is continuously having selective pressure put on it. We have no idea what types of variants are going to emerge. We have three that emerged here in Brazos Valley you know, in our student population. And one of them is pretty concerning. So I just think before we all, you know, it's okay, Greg, you can go to a restaurant, but before Thanks. we all go, go free and like the pandemic's over, I think we need to be very, very careful about what could, what viruses are amazing, amazing organisms that could do many things that would not be great for us. Well, on the uh, on the on that uplifting note, um, that's a that's a that's a good note. That's a good. It note. is a good yeah. note. <laughs> really depress everyone at the end. <laughs> no, no, no. Just be be careful. Those viruses are nasty. And despite what uh, Joe Rogan is out there telling you on uh, one of our you know competitor podcasts, um, yeah, we're a competitor to Joe Rogan. <laughs> you should go get vaccinated. I, uh, unlike Christy, am, am not risk averse. I, uh, I enjoy a little bit of risk, and um, but not with other people's lives and giving them uh, the coronavirus because uh, that seems not uh, risky. That just seems cruel. It just seems like a cruel thing to do to other people. Um, is uh, it seems like a pretty straightforward uh, reason why everyone should go get the vaccine so they're not harming other people. But that logic uh, only appeals when you can battle through the misinformation i think yeah. greg uh christy thanks for um joining us uh, hopefully we can have you again uh next season it's always uh, it's always a pleasure to chat with you greg it's hard to believe we're we're through another season um and this one was a lot of fun and i'm hoping that uh if we're lucky enough to be able to do it again in the fall that we can do it in person on occasion it, it, it was not nearly as much fun as the past ones where we could you know meet at downtown on court but uh, but no it was a nice it was a nice break from the pandemic to be able to chat with you via the podcast i really enjoyed it as well it is always a pleasure christy thanks so much again um thanks for your honesty and for your voice on these things and uh we're happy to have you anytime and we will see you all hopefully in the fall Bye-bye.